There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. And we have a wonderful guest today. Captain Charlie Plum graduated from the United States Naval Academy and went on to be a fighter pilot flying the F-4 Phantom Jet on 74 successful combat missions over Vietnam. On his 75th mission, with only five days before he was to return home, Charlie was shot down, captured, tortured, and imprisoned in an eight by eight foot cell. He spent the next 2,103 days as a prisoner of war in communist war prisons. Currently, Charlie is one of the most sought after achievement speakers of his time. His presentations are sincere, straightforward, humorous, and tailored to motivate each specific audience he encounters. His insights on how to cope with the difficulties as well as the opportunities in life have a positive impact on those who hear his message, read his books, and those who come to know him as a friend. So welcome to my classmate, Captain Charlie Plum, to It's All About Skills. Hey, Charlie, great to be with you, my friend. Great to be with you, too. We've, been, we've known each other for an awful long time, and we played trumpet together in the Drum of Bugle Corps. Yeah, we sure did. You, and you were a great uh, bugler. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Charlie, let's start from the beginning. Um, let's go back a few years and, and tell, tell us what, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, specifically, uh, what motivated you to go to the United States Naval Academy? You know, Charlie, I was, I was just reading your book, your uh, book, Super Nuke, and found out a lot more about you than I thought I knew. You know, obviously, we went to school together. But we are both Midwest farm kids. I had never seen the ocean, just that you had never seen the ocean. <laughs> and, and we were way out of our element when we went to Annapolis. But uh, I grew up in a tiny town in Kansas. And uh, age 17, I knew I needed to get out of there and uh, do something with my life. My parents couldn't afford to send me to college. I, so I just did the old shotgun approach and, and uh, sent my resume to everybody I could think of. Lo and behold, <laughs> I got an appointment to Annapolis. So you and I, I don't know how you got there. I got there on a Greyhound bus. Um, but you and I appeared in uh, 1960, as I recall, the 3rd of July or 5th of July, early in July, and uh, raised our hands and pledged to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we had no idea what we were getting into, did we? No, we didn't, but it, it was easy to say because we were both in college and that's what we wanted to do. 
That's exactly right. <laughs> so what made you choose to be a, a Navy pilot? You know, I had always dreamed of flying airplanes and, I, and I'd never been, you know, I'd never flown in an airplane before I went to Annapolis um, and never thought that I could ever pilot one. And I, I suppose it was so fascinating to me that I might have the, the, the opportunity to fly a Navy jet. Uh, wow. And so I, I applied for it as did, you know, as you know, a lot of our classmates applied to go down to Pensacola. Our, uh, our second class summer, as you recall, we went down there and, and got um, a, a little uh, hint of what it might be like. And so we made several flights in Navy airplanes, Navy training airplanes at the time, and I was hooked. And so, uh, of course, when we, we graduated, uh, the Vietnam War was was just starting to crank up. It hadn't cranked up yet, at least publicly. But um, I think they, I think they started needing more pilots, and so um, I was lucky enough to get a slot in Pensacola. Went on through the, the, the program, um, did pretty well. Got my first choice F four Phantoms jet. What it, at the time was the hottest airplane in the world. We had all the speed time to climb records we had just a, it was just a great great machine and um and in fact uh, at miramar i helped start the top gun school um while i was there so that was that was an exciting time i flew the first adversarial flights uh, for top gun wow wow you know and uh, as you know this is a program about skills so let me ask you a question about that as you recall what are the what would you how would you summarize the skills that you learned at the Naval Academy before you got into the pilot? You know, I think one of, one of the skills I learned uh, and, and certainly held me in good stead in pilot training and then in the prison camp was, um, was just resilience, you know, because that plebe year was, was tough for me. And um, I, I was in a company that uh, didn't spare the rod. <laughs> uh, they were pretty tough on us, and I, I, I think I think I learned through that experience that you you have to kind of choose your battles. You have to you have to, to choose your um, the, the things you're going to react to and the things you're going to to dismiss. And of course, you know our our superintendent. Remember old Uncle Charlie, Charles Kirkpatrick. He had a good name, Charlie. He did have a good name, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but he, he used to stand up in front of those pep, pep rallies, you know, before the big football games. And he would say, you guys can do anything you set your minds to do. And uh, don't you uh, forget it. And don't and, you forget and don't you, it. And don't you forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it, it, I think it gave me the confidence of making the, the decisions in life that regardless of what's around you, you still have a decision to make about how you're going to react to what's around you. And so, I mean, beyond all the academics and, and uh, all the falter all that we went through in, in military training, I think, you know, that was, that was it. Of course, teamwork uh, played a, a big role at the Naval Academy. We all were on teams uh, of one kind or another. And, uh, you know, to depend on the guy next to you uh, it was, was critical in my training and upbringing. So 
after you left the Naval Academy, you went to the pilot training. How did your, what other skills did you learn when you went through the pilot training at Pensacola? Well, of course, landing on aircraft carriers is a, is a pretty tricky thing. Um, the Navy flight training is about six months longer than Air Force, just so we can learn to land on a, on a pitching uh, deck of an aircraft carrier. Um, and uh, of course, flying in formation with other guys, again, you know, the, the teamwork aspect, the fact that you're, you're flying just, uh, you know, four or five feet away from another airplane that's going 600 miles an hour, as you are, and, um, you know, trusting that flight lead is not going to bank into you or, you know, take you into a situation where you can't get out of. And there's just an awful lot of trust involved in, in, uh, in flight. And, and I think that was probably one of the skills that I learned there was you find people that you can trust and then, uh, you know, follow them, follow them uh, into the mountain. Yeah. And uh, tell you mentioned about carriers. Tell us what it was like uh, when you first landed on an aircraft carrier. What, what, what went through your mind? What it was like? What you're trying to do on an aircraft carrier is put your eyeball through this imaginary window that's a foot high and three feet wide. Um, of course, your eyeball is attached to the ejection seat in this 52-foot airplane and, and weighing you know, anywhere from 30 to 60,000 pounds. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that little imaginary window in the sky, that sucker keeps moving on you, you know? <laughs> it, goes, it goes up and down and sideways, and the, and the ship is steaming along at about 30 knots. And, uh, and so you're chasing this, this window in the sky. So um, it, it, it's interesting that the first time you, that you, you're out there, we train on these, on the, on airfields, you know, we train to land on aircraft carriers on a, on an outlying field outside of Pensacola. <clears throat> and you go out there in early in the morning where, where uh, the wind is light and it's very calm. And so, you know, you're, you learn in a pretty controlled environment. So your instructor's in your back seat. Okay. I'm, I'm in the front seat of this jet and um, a trainer. And we run down and, and we find the airfield. Now I knew that there was going to be this imprint of an aircraft carrier painted on the airfield. And, um, and so, you know, I kind of knew what I was gonna, and I'd been through the, the simulators and, and, you know, things were looking pretty good. We're on the downwind leg, right? And the instructor uh, comes up on the microphone. He said, okay, you see the airfield? Yes, sir, I see the airfield. Okay, you see the uh, footprint of the, of the aircraft carrier? Well, I didn't see it. But I knew it was there, so I said, "Yes, sir, I see it." <laughs> so we get we, we we go on down to to uh, the, the 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 initial part where you, you make the turn to, to to turn into into the field, and he said, "Oh, you still see the aircraft carrier?" "Oh, yes, sir, I still see it." Of course, I still didn't see it, but I knew it was there. I knew I knew it when I got close enough. I'd pick this thing up. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, so I get in. I turn on final. All right. I'm like a quarter of a mile from the field and I see this little bitty postage stamp on there. I said, holy smokes, that's what I'm trying to land on. And I start laughing and he starts laughing because he knew that I didn't see the aircraft carrier. He, he didn't see it either. <laughs> so so that, that was the, the, the aircraft, uh, that was learning to land on an aircraft carrier. Wow, and what was your experience like the first time you really did land on an aircraft carrier? You know, it was really the, the plane that I was flying, this, uh, the T2J Buckeye, 
little trainer uh, jet, you could open the canopy. And I had the canopy open because it was a hot day. And a, a wasp flew in to ride with me. Um, and this thing started crawling up my glove. <laughs> I'm talking to the wasp as I'm making this carrier approach. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, I, I landed on the carrier and it, it, it didn't bite me. It just flew flew away. It just It just wanted to ride to the ship, I guess. So it sounds like you were more worried about the wasp than you worry about landing on the carrier. You know, I was actually because I had done it so many times. Well, you know, you know, the Navy, that's how you train it. You just do it over and over and over until it is just embedded in your mind. And you know, that's exactly what you're going to do. So uh, it was pretty good. Now I flew, I, I, I was I was actually pretty good at carrier landings. And I had in the squadron, uh, I had the record. I had uh, like 45 carrier landings without ever missing. Of course, when you miss you're landing, you just add full power and you go, you fly around again. And, and, and that would happen fairly frequently. The, 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 uh, you'd be, you, your lineup would be bad, bad, or you'd be too fast or too slow. You're trying to get within one half of a knot accuracy when you're coming down the glide slope. Well, I had done this really, really good for 45 times and thought that I was the hot shot of it all. And I came in late one night and, um, and it was, uh, pretty foggy and moonless night and uh, kind of, you know, a, a broken layer at about uh, 200 feet. And, uh, and, and so I'm coming in looking pretty good. Uh, of course, when you land on the aircraft here, you add full power. Even when, even when you catch the hook, you had full power just in case the hook breaks or the cable breaks or, or it skips and, and so you can go on off. Well, I'd done it so good for so many times that, that, I, that I became complacent and I didn't add power anymore. And so, and I was really surprised when I, when I missed that cable with my hook because I'd done it perfectly for 45 times. So I'm off the end of this aircraft carrier in the middle of the night and, um, uh, and the, the, the controller, the radar controller says, okay, dummy, <laughs> turn left and turn left and pick up your interval, you'll, you'll see, your interval is at 11 o'clock high. So I'm in my turn, okay, looking for my interval through these broken clouds and I see a light, which I assume is the interval. It's the masthead light on the ship oh that I'm looking at. Yeah, and uh, of course I got my radar interceptor option in the back seat and my co-pilot and, 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 and he, hey dummy, you know, <laughs> looking at the wrong light and saved, my, and saved both our lives that day. But, lesson learned there talking about skills man is when you you know when you get so complacent that you think you know everything about everything uh look out because you're when you start feeling bulletproof you know you may have a missile sneaking up your tail wow and well you it's amazing you guys landed on the aircraft carriers in all kinds of weather and at night and everything that must have been really a hair-raising experience it, it really was, but it's like most anything else. You learn to do it and uh, you, know, you, you, you fine tune everything. You know, you're really rough at first. And then as you go through it, you fine tune. And, and, by, uh, and, and again, you learn the trust of, uh, of your, your comrades there. And we, 
we got to the point, my air wing could land an airplane on an aircraft carrier every 28 seconds. Wow. And it was all zip lip. It was uh, no communication. Uh, and, uh, and we did it because you knew how everybody else flew their airplane. And if you knew, you know, that, that John was in front of you and you knew he was going to take a little extra time getting out of the landing gear, uh, the arresting gear, you, you gave him a little extra time or, you know, you came in close if you knew your buddy was going to uh, be making a, uh, uh, get a three wire and get out of the, uh, of the gear. So, um, and, and the coordination and the teamwork is just unbelievable. It's just the closest, the closest coordination of men and machines I think I ever saw. Wow. And then after all of that training and so forth, you got your orders to deploy to West, to the, to the Far East, uh, and to confront the, uh, the, the war in, in Vietnam. What, what went through your mind when that happened? And tell us a little bit about that first deployment. I was excited um, to get on the deployment. You know, once you've, you've trained for so long for this, uh, you, you know, you want to put your skills to work for you. And so, um, of course, it's, a, as you know, in the Navy and in, in, in nuclear subs, as well as aircraft carriers, it's a 24 seven deal. You, you, you are never um, out of a job. You're always working, doing something because you have so much more work to do than you have time to do it. And so there was never a dull moment on the aircraft carrier. And I flew missions with my squadron, VF-114, the Aardvarks, uh, and we were a proud squadron. Um, we, you know, we, uh, we dropped a lot of bombs and shot a lot of missiles and shot some aircraft down and, um, and it, you know, I, I was I was so proud to to be out there in you know in the theater and uh, in the mix of it all, and uh, and obviously proud of the airplane that I was flying. Of course, I was 24 years old, you know, in command of this this supersonic jet fighter. It was uh, it, it was it was a real thrill. Wow! Uh, tell us a little bit about the first mission that you you flew over Vietnam. Uh, the first missions were fairly easy. They were called CAP missions, Combat Air Patrol. And what we did was we would just launch from the aircraft carrier, get between the carrier and the enemy, and just fly loops, just um, a race a racetrack pattern, uh, just to be there and available if the enemy came out to the aircraft carriers. And so the first few missions uh, of, of any new pilot, we're just going to be go up there and grind around, and 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 quite honestly, it was quite boring, because you were, you know, you were up there, uh, you're, you know, you had missiles and you were loaded for bear, but uh, we never saw any. Uh, and then after two or three of those, then we got into the action. Now, we had a sister squadron, uh, and in a, in a one month line period, we would fly as fighters for two weeks and then for attack for two weeks, which meant that as fighters, we just carried air to air missiles. So the fighters to shoot down the, the enemy airplanes. Then after two weeks, we'd switch to the bomber role and we started carrying bombs and rockets um, and, and flares and other kinds of equipment uh, hanging from our wings. Now, the problem, of course, in this was that as bombers, we took off from the aircraft carried about uh, 65, 60, 000, 66,000 pounds, uh, you know, pretty, pretty heavy airplane. 
but as fighters, when all we had was these, the little air-to-air -air missiles, um, we take off at, you know, 38, 40,000 pounds. So it was a big, big difference in how the airplane responded, uh, you know, depending on whether you, what, what role you were playing, whether you were a fighter or whether you were attacked. And so my first, my first missions as a bomber uh, with a heavy airplane taking off and, and went into parts of North Vietnam where we were trying to interdict uh, the supply routes down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It was Highway 1, which was down, you know, fairly, well, it was kind of in and out um, of the rice paddies and, and the, and the uh, mountains. And, uh, and we had specific targets on some occasions, and in some occasions we would just look for targets to, to bomb. Um, now, and you know, we, we had to be awfully careful uh, because obviously in any war there's collateral damage, but boy, we were, we were threatened for, with court-martial if we killed any civilians. Uh, and so uh, we, and, and that was a bit of a problem because our bombs, th these are World War II bombs, you know, these, these are dumb bombs and, um, and, and they're really not that accurate. If we could get within oh, probably 50 or 75 feet of our target, we were pretty good. Um, now, as the war went on, of course, we got smart bombs and, uh, and, they, were, uh, and they were laser guided or, or even uh, television guided. <clears throat> but you know, uh, my first few missions uh, were on, on uh, interdicting uh, supply routes uh, of the North Vietnamese were coming down to the South. Wow, and then uh, you flew 74 of these things and it got to be pretty routine and so forth. And then you have five days before you're getting ready to go home and you're all excited and you head out on your 75th mission. Tell us about that 75th mission. It was uh, what we call an alpha strike, which was sanctioned by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They, the, you know, they chose the target and they chose the methods and everything else right from the Pentagon. And it was a big deal. We had all three aircraft carriers and five Air Force bases, and we were all descending on the same targets in North Vietnam. It was the 19th of May, as a matter of fact. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I found out in the prison camp, it was Ho Chi Minh's birthday. <laughs> their, their president was having a birthday. And our, our intelligence, you know, our Psy War folks figured that they would be out celebrating President's Day, and we would catch them with their pants down. Well, for whatever reason, and, uh, you know, I mean, now we know some of the rest of the story that McNamara and some of the other characters um, in that war were actually sending messages to our enemy, telling them where, when and where we're going to strike. And, uh, and, and I don't know if that was the case this time, but they sure knew we were coming. And they had all the air defenses uh, in, in the air at that time. Now, this, this airplane that I was flying, this F-4 Phantom, was uh, built during the Cold War as a high-altitude supersonic interceptor. You know, our job was to fly off the aircraft carriers and uh, engage the Russian bombers, you know, at 70,000 feet um, and shoot them down from 20 miles away, make a 30-degree angle of bank turn and come back and safely land on the aircraft carrier. Well, uh, Vietnam came around. In fact, I was trained in a uh, in an astronaut suit, you know, a full pressure suit. Um, and I was trained in this silly thing with a bubble 
canopy, a helmet, uh, was a, a bubble and I carried around a, an air conditioner in my briefcase. And um, it was crazy because then we got into the Vietnam War and we never ever flew that high. And I didn't get, I, I rarely got over 20,000 feet in Vietnam. So, uh, so it was a different war. Well, and of course our missiles, you know, that we, uh, that we were gonna use on the Russian bears, um, well, we're not really good because we had to positively identify uh, a MiG before we shot it down. Well, so you can't shoot from 20 miles out because you, you, you don't know for sure that's, uh, in fact, when you're getting close enough to see the MiG, you were too close to shoot your missiles. I mean, it was, it was really, really crazy. You know, the, the whole way this whole thing uh, came about and was organized. So, but this particular day on the 19th of May, when, when uh, you know, the, the PSYOPs folks thought that we, we, we'd catch them uh, celebrating, they were shooting like crazy. Now, uh, before I went to Vietnam, uh, the, the guys coming back in the squadron from Vietnam said, hey, Charlie, you know, we don't have any uh, anti-radar uh, 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 on this airplane. Uh, we can't even tell when the, the missiles are shot at us. So go down to Radio Shack, buy yourself a fuzz buster. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and as I did, and uh, you know, it has the suction cup and you, you stick it to your windscreen and you run this little white wire down under your G-suit and your torso harness and under your oxygen mask and your ear. And so here I am flying this $20 million airplane being protected by a $29 fuzz buster. <laughs> so um, the, the, the problem with a fuzz buster was it, it told you when the SAM missile was, um, was sweeping and then it, and when it was locked on, but it did not give you any directional capability. And so, in fact, we needed your geoplotting, Charlie, <laughs> because man, we, we couldn't tell where these guys were from. All we knew was there's a missile in the air and it's heading for me. And so, uh, and, and that's what happened that day is that uh, I, I heard the warble and then it steadied out, you know, something's locked on and I start jinking like crazy. And uh, I, I, I could see three or four missiles in the air. There were all kinds of SAMs in the air that day. The one I didn't see came right up my tail blew up to some 12,000 pounds of jet fuel I had on board. And uh, my co-pilot and I came topsy-turvy, end over end, down towards the rice paddy. Wow, what, what went through your mind when you got out of the plane and on your way down? You know, I think, well, well first of all, what went through my mind immediately was find a way out of here, you know? And so I, I from, the, from the parachute, I looked all around to see if I could find some place to escape, a tree line that I could hide in, you know, or some rocks uh, that, that, that I could uh, hide behind. Um, and, and then when I hit the ground, I sunk about waist deep in a rice paddy. Um, and I was, I was descended upon by, uh, seemed like 30 or 40 uh, farmers uh, that came out with their hatchets and their machetes and their rakes and you know to capture me wow and it and from that point i i think i i i, I you know my mind just um i don't know it it, it, it just kind of went berserk yeah. and i think that 
in, you know, I, I did really silly, stupid things. Um, and, uh, and I mean, of course, you know, I, I'd, I'd been trained, I'd been through the survival schools, I'd been trained to uh, evade the, the enemy, but boy, there was no evading when I came down. Oh my so, God. Captured immediately. Oh, and they, they, then what happened? They took you to, where did they take you? The, the farmers took me to a little schoolhouse because the air raid was going on at the same time. You know, we were, we were still bombing uh, all the stuff that was around this little town. And uh, so they took me to a schoolhouse and tied me in there while they stripped me of everything I had in the nude. I was, I was hauled around in the nude with a rope around my neck, uh, put me in a schoolhouse and tied me to uh, a desk in the school. Uh, and blindfolded and and gagged and uh, and tied to this desk until all of the the air raids stopped, and then uh, soldiers in their jeeps came and tied me up even more and uh, hauled me into the Hanoi Hilton, uh, the Wallow Prison Camp in downtown Hanoi. Oh my golly! And so that was your residence for the next six years or so. That that was going to be my home for a while. Yep. Oh gosh Almighty. So what was it like after you arrived at the Hanoi Hill? Well, uh, I was tortured for two days um, for military information and political propaganda with ropes and irons and whips. Uh, pretty, you know, pretty difficult time in my life. Yes. Um, in fact, probably the bright spot there <laughs> was I, I, you know, I felt like they tortured me to the point where they saw I was going to die, and then they let up. And when I, when I figured that they weren't going to kill me, or, or intentionally anyway, um, I, it gave me renewed hope. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, it was kind of interesting because, and I established plateaus of pain. You know, it, it would hurt really bad, and I would, I would think to myself, you know. If it doesn't get any worse than this, if the pain doesn't get any greater than this, I can, I can hang on. I can survive this. And then they tightened the ropes, uh, and uh, and it got worse. The, the pain got worse. And then I would think, okay, uh, pain got worse, but I'm still alive. I'm breathing. I'm surviving. If it doesn't get any worse than this, I can survive. And then it got worse. And so, so there were these plateaus of pain that that. I established that that seemed to help in my survival. Oh my golly. So after that, and it's kind of a, I suppose that's the welcoming committee and that sort of thing. Uh, how did it settle down into some sort of routine? It absolutely did. And, uh, you know, the torture came back about, oh, I don't know, every six months or a year, they would find some reason to, to make a big purge in the camp. Somebody would be caught communicating or somebody would get out of line and, and, and take a swing at a guard and they would just have a wholesale um, uh, torture party and, and pull us out and, and into the, in the ropes and whips and, and, uh, and you know, do it again. But, uh, and you know, obviously those were troublesome, but the, the biggest problem probably was just the boredom because in these little prison cells, they gave us nothing to do. We had no books to read. We had no window to look at. We had no TV or radio or telephone or anything. Um, and, uh, and, and 
you know, Charlie, the average day you and I have, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of inputs in sounds and sights and smells and, yeah. and things we read and, you know, in, in an eight foot by eight foot prison cell where you can't see out, have nothing else to do, you know, there might be a dozen things in a day that, that get your attention. You know, it might be a bird, you know, that you hear outside or, or maybe a rainstorm comes up, but, but everything else has to come from in your mind. It, it, it has to be drummed up internally. And so, so I, I, start, I started by going back through my, my history. I thought to myself, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make a little uh, autobiography right here in this prison camp. I'm gonna try to remember every book I'd ever read, every teacher I'd ever had, every girl I'd ever dated, every car I'd ever driven, you know, every plane I'd ever flown. And, and, and you know, just to try to occupy my mind with memories. And it took about three months at working at this, I don't know, eight or 10 hours a day for three months. I finally ran out of, um, of memories. I finally figured I'd remember just about everything I'd ever gone through. Uh, and then, you know, if a week or two would go by and I would remember something new that I hadn't remembered in the first, that first three months. And it was like seeing an old friend, you know, or, 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 or and, and I would think, okay, I'll, I'd think of the sounds and the colors and, and everything about that one incident in that one day that I had that I had uh, forgotten in the first three months. So it was kind of a period of discipline. Of course, once we started communicating with the other guys, then you know, things got a whole lot brighter because we passed around Bible verses and patriotic quotes and poems. I learned a couple of thousand lines of poetry in that prison camp. Wow. And uh, uh, from, from a guy who had, had been forced as a child to present an epic poem every Thanksgiving you know, at a family reunion. And he hated it while he was doing it. But when he came into the prison camp, he was a very popular guy because it was, you know, it was, it was like a, a, seeing a, a, a movie, you know, or, or a serial or, a, um, you know, or reading a book just with this guy passing around uh, these, um, these lines of poetry. So it was like new information, a new experience. It was. And, uh, and we taught each other courses. In fact, when we came home, University of Maryland gave us credits for the courses that we had taken from each other oh, really? without PowerPoints, with, yeah, without textbooks, without you know, professors or anything else. Uh, because we would, you know, we would go back through our mind and remember all these courses. It's amazing what's in your brain that we never ever pull out. And old Joe Milligan was one of my first uh, cellmates, and he he was teaching a course on biology. I'd, I'd never I'd never had a course in biology, and so I was really interested. And his whole lesson plan lasted about a week, um, but every day Joe would lay back on his board bed and he would think about biology. And and I, I and about well five years later. You know, I happen to be in the same cell with him again. He's teaching the same course. And it was six months long. He went from protozoas to metazoas and everything in between. <laughs> well, did you get a degree in biology from the University of Maryland? <laughs> no, I should have. <laughs> I taught a course in I taught a course in sailing. Oh. You, you would you would appreciate this. Um, 
and and the guys actually were next door. I'm tapping on the wall, you know, telling them about sailing. And I mean, you know, how do you teach sailing, you know, in a prison cell? Well, and you know, I I, I guess I, I guess this went on maybe a couple of months. And I was talking about wind directions and you know, tacking and jiving and and uh, all of the rigging of ships and all this stuff. And um, so we came home at about. Oh, maybe a month after we came home, I got this call from one of these guys, Charlie, Charlie, I did it. I just rented a sailboat. I can sail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're talking about uh, teaching courses and that sort of thing. The thing goes through my mind is how did you communicate in these cells? I mean, where you, you couldn't see one another or how did you do our, it? Our communication uh, was fabulous. It was just unbelievable the things we did to communicate. For, it, a lot of our communication was based around what we call the tap code. It's a five by five matrix of the alphabet, five lines, five rows. Numbers down the side and across the top indicating any letter would be represented by the number of the line then the number of the row. So A, one tap, one more tap. Z, five taps, five more taps. We, we substituted C for the letter K just to make it come out five by five. And so this tap code was used in a lot of different ways. In fact, the first way that I used it was a, a guy in a cell, uh, 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 not next to me, but across a storeroom from me, passed a wire, like a kind of like about the gauge of a coat hanger, um, across the, the cell room, the, the storeroom, and he passed that wire over the boxes, around the shovels, through the ropes, and into the little hole in my cell while 14 feet away. And it had, it had this code written on a piece of toilet paper. And uh, it, said, it said, memorize this code, then eat this note. <laughs> well, I'd learned not to volunteer for things in the Navy, but <laughs> I, I did it. So, um, so I started tugging on this wire in this code. It, uh, and at first it's very cumbersome code, very slow. But just amazingly, you get a lot better, a lot faster on this coat. So we use this coat to tug on wires and tap on walls. And if a guy would get out into the courtyard chopping wood for, for the fire, he would chop in the code. Chop, 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 chop. And he would, he would spell out uh, a message. And it, it, it was our radio station. <laughs> oh my, you probably got really good at that too. Oh yeah, he really did. And, and of course the enemy never caught on to this. We, we, we were moved to a camp uh, late, you know, late in the war actually, uh, th because they would catch us every now and then uh, with our communicating and that was forbidden. And you could not communicate with any other prisoner. Uh, and um, other than the ones, your, your cellmates, you know, most, most of the time I had a cellmate, uh, but they, they built a, a new camp way up in the mountains, close to the China border. In fact, it was in the buffer zone of China, so we couldn't fly into there or try to, to, to make a rescue uh, as, as they had tried to do uh, a couple of years before. The Sante raid um, was a, a rescue attempt. So because of that, they built this camp. And the camp was, was specifically designed uh, around the way we tried to communicate with each other. So 
that was all double walled. You, you, you couldn't tap from one wall to the other because you had two walls uh, and a space between you. And all of our vent holes, there were vent holes at uh, eight or 10 feet off the floor. These vent holes, maybe a foot high and six inches wide. Um, and none of the vent holes looked into any of the other vent holes uh, in, in, in this prison camp. Well, we knew by that time that we could make a mirror by, by uh, polishing a piece of wood uh, and then put earwax on the wood and make a mirror out of this. And so we would put our, our mirror out in, into this uh, vent hole and you could, you could uh, contact with a guy in another vent hole sticking his mirror out the side of his vent hole and you could see the guy, okay? Or it, if you, he could at least see uh, the light uh, and so you could, it was, it was like a, it was like a, a blinker light uh, and, and you could blink in the same code that we were using. So uh, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the best code of all was one we devised when we found that the enemy, uh, most of them had tuberculosis and they were always coughing and spitting and, and we couldn't whisper a word outside our cell, but we could go around coughing and spitting all the time. They paid no attention. We decided it's a natural we'll make a code out of these silly guttural noises. And we did. Wow. So you'd wake up in the morning, hear the guys next door go <laughs> That means, good morning, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is strange. <laughs> but anything, anything goes, huh? Yep, anything goes. And it, it, it was vital that we communicate, not because of the messages that we were passing around, the, the, the life-saving property of communication. And, 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 and as I say in my speeches, uh, communication in a business environment with your family, uh, with your neighbors, the life-saving value of communication is the simple validation of another human being. Because in those prison cells when it was dark, and it was a, a lot of the camps were, were really dark, you couldn't tell green from red. And if you were alone in solitary confinement, it seemed like those two things, being alone in the dark, you'd lose track. You wouldn't know what was a real memory anymore, what's a hallucination. Um, you, 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 you needed a baseline, uh, a sounding board, some way to validate your sanity. The simple tugging on a wire, to have that wire tugged back meant two things. Number one, somebody's responding to something I am doing physically, thus I exist. Number two, somebody cares. Yeah. And so I'm validated just by the communication. And, uh, and, and, I, th and I think that's, that's essential in, in life, you know, this is validating other people. I think, it's, I think it's true in sales, it's true in management, it's true in all kinds of leadership is that it's the old adage, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that validation was vital in our survival. Wow, and that's, now how would you sum up uh, the skills that you learned there at, uh, at uh, the Hanoi Hilton University? I mean, you learned new communication skills. You learned how to make things happen. You knew uh, you had to employ new technology and you had to invent your own. How would you sum those things yeah. up? That, well, that's very true, and it's very difficult to, to, to summarize all of that. But uh, in, in addition to the technical skills I think that we learned, 
uh, I validated a lot of the skills that I learned before. The trust that you have, yeah. you know, in 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 any combat situation, uh, you you have to trust the other guy. And there are a number of those ex POWs that claimed I saved their life, and I know they saved mine on many occasions. And so that trust that you, that you have to have that bond, uh, and it's not just in the military. You know, I think throughout life we bond with other people. And, and you and I learned that at the, at the Naval Academy. It, it's, it's just essential that we learn to trust. The, the other things that I validated, one of the things, you know, my mother, your mother was a school teacher, I know, and, and mine was a stay-at-home mom uh, and, uh, and, and just, a, just a wonderful, wonderful lady. My, my mother was a Mother Teresa-like person. She just loved everybody never had a bad word to say about anybody and forgave. And she, she taught me a lot about forgiveness. Now she was a wonderful Christian lady, but forgiveness I think goes farther than just, uh, you know, just a, a, a religious principle. In the prison camp, I found that, that I had to forgive uh, the guards, the torture, you know, I had to forgive the, you know, the, 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 the mechanic that Put the airplane together. I, I had to forgive myself for not dodging that missile. Um, and in doing so, I got rid of all this hate and vitriol within my body. Hmm. What, one, one of the quotes uh, that was really important to me uh, about maybe three months into the prison camp, and I established communication with this guy on the end of the wire. He's passing around um, Bible verses and patriotic quotes and prayers and that kind of thing. And one of the quotes was this, Acid does more harm on the vessel it's stored than on the subject it's poured. Hmm. And what that meant to me was if I harbor all of this hate and discontent, you know, if I live my life with this vitriol within my body, it's not hurting the enemy. You know, it's, it's killing me. And I decided that moment that I, I really believed every day I was going to live through that. But I decided that moment, if I die here, they're going to have to work, you know, to drag Charlie Plum out by his feet. You know, uh, I'm, I am not going to kill myself with all of this bitterness in my body. And so, so my mom taught me to forgive and, and that was one of the skills I think I learned and validated there. The other one was, was discipline. My dad was, uh, you know, one of the greater generation, uh, World War II kind of guy. And, and he, was a, 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 he was a pretty hard disciplinarian, you know. I, I, I got the back of his hand more than once, and he had a razor strap <laughs> that, uh, that uh, I uh, that I took across my bottom uh, a time or two. But um, but but it was all good for me. And he taught me discipline. And here's what he said. He would say, "You know, son," he said, "self-discipline gives you options." And I couldn't understand that, you know, because we think of discipline as restrictive. You know, it's something that holds us in. Uh, and, and yet I found that in the prison camp that the more disciplined that I was, the more of a routine that I could establish, um, then the more options I would have. And I think that's still true today. You know, I think it's true in all of our lives is that if we have a life, an undisciplined life, then it, it lowers the options that we have. We, we, don't, we don't have that, that self-control. So those two things, well, those several things uh, were the lessons, the, the skills that I learned in the prison camp. Wow. Now that 
there came the day when you learned you were going home. What was that like? Well, we've been um, teased many, many times by the enemy. Uh, they, you know, they would, hey, war's over. We're going home. Come on in, sign this confession, and we'll send you to the airport. And of course, it was all just a sham. Uh, anytime they wanted us to to do something for them a favor, you know, they would uh, they would would offer early release. You know, we could go home early if all, if all we had to do is is make this tape for the anti-war element in the states. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, so we were tricked many times. And and so it got to the point where we just didn't believe anything they said until one day they came in with a big sheet of toilet paper. You know, this is the old European wrapping paper kind of toilet paper. And uh, they, they put it on the, on the dirt floor and uh, they said, put your foot on here. <clears throat> well, of course we had no shoes uh, for the six years I was there. Put my foot on there and they traced around my foot. They were gonna make some shoes. <laughs> huh. And that was probably the first indicator. And then um, the food got better. You know, which was a bit of a dilemma. You know, we had a very strong leadership. You know, Jim Stockdale and Jeremiah Denton and and all, and and John McCain. John was my old flight instructor, and so I knew him pretty well. He was shot down five months after I was. Uh, but the leadership of the prison camp, of course, pretty much called shots. And when when we we got a little more than our two bowls of rice a day, when they started bringing in some canned fish you know uh and and we knew something was up and we knew that, that we might be going home and the leadership was at somewhat of a turmoil you know do we eat this stuff and get fat and happy like we've been on vacation they started allowing us outside you know we we were pinned up in these cells never never got any sunlight and they allowed us outside to get a little color in our skin and uh and so but leadership prevailed and they finally decided, what the heck, man, eat all you can. <laughs> we may not get this chance again. <laughs> so, uh, but those were the first indications that we were coming home. Then, of course, of course, we had very, very strong military organization. I mean, it was wonderful. To, uh, every time you move to a new camp, that's the first thing you did was check your data rank and your serial number uh, and, uh, and figure out just who's, senior to whom and who has who calls the shots so every camp had an sro senior residing officer every building every cell block every cell had uh, had a senior person in it, and we all reported and the senior the leadership came up with with uh, what they call the plums had nothing to do with my last name but for whatever reason they called these the plums and they were the six levels of resistance that we were going to use against the enemy. And it went uh, everything from a, from a full-fledged um, riot, prison riot. And, uh, and level one was just refusing to bow to the North Vietnamese. Now, we were always forced to do this low ceremonious bow to the enemy. Anytime you saw, any, or anytime they came to your door and opened the hatch in your door, you reported to the door and made a very slow, ceremonious bow to the enemy. And uh, that's just what we were had, we had to do. And if you didn't do it, you're going to get hit by a rifle butt uh, or, or a fist or uh, they did knock you to the floor if you didn't bow to them. 
to show our subservience. Well, um, of these plums, of these rules, the resistance number one was to refuse to bow. Sounds like a really stupid, simple thing, but I'll tell you this, when the word went out, and of course, our communication was so good that our leadership could get a message out to the entire camp just within a day. You know, they could communicate with this code to the entire camp. And, and, and they would set up resistance level one and everybody in the camp would refuse to, 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 to bow. And it scared the enemy to death to know that we had that kind of coordination and that kind of leadership in the camp. So one of the plums was we were to return with honor in order. And that meant, in order, of, uh, well, first of all, the enlisted, we had a few enlisted guys there. They, uh, first was the sick and injured, then the enlisted, and then officers by date of shoot down. So the guys who were there the longest would go home the first. And so we, and, and we had memorized all the names and we knew it was supposed to be going home first. They came into our prison cell and it was a, it was a fairly big cell. We had probably a dozen guys in that cell. It was small. It was probably 10 feet by 20 feet. And, uh, and so we had all these guys in there. And they came in there and said, today's the day. You're going home. You know, here's some pants to wear. Here's some shoes to wear. Get on the bus. It's outside the gate. We knew that the sick and injured had not been uh, released yet. So we told them no. Uh, and and it start uh, and the guys the, the camp commander said, you're going to start an international uh, uh, incident here if you don't return because we've signed these treaties, and we've uh, and Kissinger wanted 20 guys to come home on the on the second plane. Okay, well, second plane, you prove to us that six sick and injured uh, have gone, and then it'll be our turn. And so they, they brought in a manifest in the first plane load of guys. And sure enough, it was a sick and injured list. It was our prayer list. We've been praying for these guys for all these years. Uh, and we knew who they were. And, and so there was a document signed at the bottom by an ambassador uh, that, 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 that the manifest that showed that these guys had gone. So it was finally our turn. And uh, our senior guy called us to attention outside our prison cell and you know, 20 dirt, dirty, ragged, scruffy old guys called Cadence as we marched out of that prison camp. Oh my golly. What was it like to climb off the plane when you arrived back to the United States? Well, it started out to be a wonderful experience until I got to uh, the hospital. And uh, my first interview was with a psychiatrist. <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, Charlie, that must have been an experience even before you went to Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, and you had the Rickover experience. I, I had the psychiatrist experience. <laughs> uh, and uh, among other things, to try to see how stable I was, he told me that my wife had filed for divorce three months earlier, and um, oh. and he ex and so he expected uh, me to break down. And I didn't, I didn't break down. And he said, uh, he said, you need to go back to your hospital room and tear up the pillow, you know, beat on the wall, uh, kick in the door, do whatever you need to do physically. Because if you don't break down now, you're going to have a serious mental collapse in the future. 
uh, he said, you, you deserve uh, to be angry. And I, and, and I said, you know, after this experience, I deserve to have diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I choose, I choose my attitude and, and I choose not to be angry. I've been set free. You don't understand this, man. I got a doorknob on the inside of my door for the first time in nearly six years. So give me a break, doc. <laughs> so that was what, 47 years ago. I'm still waiting for a mental, my mental breakdown. <laughs> Could happen any minute. <laughs> then Charlie, you, uh, you really made something out of that experience that you had, of that incredible experience and in that you, you wrote a book you uh, and you become an incredible motivational speaker. So you uh, you use that as a terrific, uh, although in, you know horrible, uh, experience and a, a kind of a university. You know, uh, I didn't intend to. In fact, when I came home, especially after I lost my wife, I started to plan the rest of my life in that hospital bed. Uh, in fact, in Great Lakes in Chicago, you know, right up the street from you. Uh, and uh, in the hospital there, uh, I'm laying in my, you know, my bed, curled up in the fetal position, thinking to myself, what could be worse than this? And then re reminding myself that I'd just been through some tough times and, and uh, I accept this as a challenge. And I had decided by that time that adversity has some opportunities within, uh, that adversity is a horrible thing to waste. And so what's the opportunity here? And, and, and still, I thought, now I'm going to go to a little bitty town in the middle of nowhere where they've never heard of Charlie Plum. And if they have, I'll change my name because mm -hmm. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to forget that uh, nearly six years of misery and pain. And then we had a press conference. I was the first guy back to the Midwest. And, and so everybody wanted to know the story. And so in the basement of that hospital, I found myself surrounded by 150 photographers and reporters people that wanted to know the story. It, it, it was a mystery, as, as you might remember from those days, there was, not, there was not much known about the POWs and what we were going through. And so everybody wanted to know. And so I, I, I stood there surrounded by all the press and told my story. On the way back up, up, up to my hospital room, just as the elevator doors closed, this young reporter sneaked in, uh, a young guy, it was a crowded elevator and we were nosed and I was nose to nose with this guy and could tell that he had tears in his eyes and anguish in his face and his, his brow was, was furled and, and, and he, was, he was just emotionally a mess. And I, I, I said, what, what's the problem? He said, oh, he said, Mr. Plum, you really got to me in there. He said, I've had a miserable year. My, my family has fallen apart. My, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. My job is terrible. He said, I've even wondered if I wanted to go on living. He said, you've given me hope. Mm -hmm. You've given me hope. And, and, and that, you know, that touched me. I thought, can, can, my, can my experience and the telling of it give anybody any hope? And if so, then I'm pretty much obliged to tell the story. Yeah. So I started speaking. I, I made over 400 presentations the first year I was home. Wow. Uh, and uh, I, I just, in fact, on the 4th of July, first 4th of July, I was home. Uh, I had so many, pre I had seven presentations and they, they hauled me around in a, an army 
helicopter to make these various presentations. Uh, I was in Kansas. I spoke to about 45,000 people in the stadium at the University of Kansas. <clears throat> so that's, that's how speaking began when I found out that there was a need for the message. And so now 5,000 speeches uh, later, my book is in its uh, 34th printing uh, later, and I'm booking speeches into 2022. So wow, the, message seems, the message just seems to be uh, eternal. You know, there's, there's no end to it. The message seems to be what you heard Uncle Charlie say. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can do anything you set your mind to do and don't forget it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlie, you've helped so many people. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard your story before and it's always, always uh, an inspiration. And I, I'll have to tell you, sometimes I thought to myself, gee, I wish I would have done that same thing. You know, <laughs> I can imagine you. <laughs> that, but you, you would have been a delight Charlie, <laughs> to be there, you know. <laughs> Well, how you, you would you would, you would have taught us courses that we'd never even heard of. <laughs> well, Charlie, how can uh, somebody get in touch with you for a speaking engagement? And how well I should tell everybody to go buy the book. The book is called, yeah, right. The book is called I'm, I'm a Hero. Is that correct? And I would debate. That's right. That, but you are a hero, Charlie. Well, thanks for that. I, you know, I, I when I came home, I was treated like a hero, unlike a lot of the Vietnam veterans. Uh, and it didn't feel like, it. and that's that's when I wrote the book was uh, visiting uh, all these VA hospitals and find guys that that without legs and arms. And uh, I came back, you know, with legs and arms and went back to flying. As a matter of fact, I still fly today. Uh, but uh, my my story and and the book and everything else on my website, charlieplum.com, and it's C H A R L I E P L U M B dot com. Charlieplum.com. And I'd recommend people go there, get the book, give him a call or sign up and get him to come to your uh, whatever it is and give, a, give you a talk. You won't regret it. You'll be inspired. Thank you, Charlie. And, uh, and I just finished Super Nuke. Uh, let's promote your, your book and, uh, and your coaching. Oh. Um, you're, you're an international uh, coach now. How, how do you get that qualification? Well, it, it, you don't go through the experience you did, Charlie, but I can tell <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> it takes a couple of years to get certified and all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, it's a lot of fun because you can help people uh, do, uh, you know, set their careers. I focus on careers and I, I help them through different career crises and, and things like that. And it, it's, it's a thing, it's, it's kind of a mission for me, just like, what you're doing seems to be a mission for you. It is, in fact, and, and you are so good at that. You know, of course, you have the experience. You have the ability to communicate that. So I, I salute you for that. And I'm still radioactive from being on that nuclear submarine so long. <laughs> I noticed the glow coming from the top of your head, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlie, I want to, by the way, I want to thank you so much for your service. You know, I can't say that <clears throat> loud enough. And uh, I want to thank you for being our guest today in It's All About Skills. And as, uh, as for me, as Charlie mentioned, I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. And you can get in touch with me 
through my website, which is a little bit like Charlie's. It's uh, charliejetcoaching.com. That's charliejetcoaching.com. So I want to thank all of you who were listening today for tuning in and enjoying Charlie's stories. I hope you are inspired. And we'll see you all again next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.